Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. This is High Tea with Grace, where we spill the tea on HIT. I'm excited to extend a warm welcome to Angela Radcliffe. She is infamous and fabulous in the research world, and I can't wait for you to meet her today. Thanks for joining us, Angela. Wow. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Infamous is probably the right description. Uh, better than famous, I think, right? You are one of a kind. Absolutely. <laughs> so tell us about the career path that brought you to your role today. Yeah, sure. Um, I love telling this story. I don't get to tell it as often anymore because I've moved into the early discovery part of the research and development world. And that's where, um, you know, all the scientists are doing the hard work of sifting through all these molecules, right, to find that next new treatment or cure, which is has been fascinating for me. Um, but I started my career um, early on sort of with a marketing um, and writing bend uh, and continuing medical education. Um, I was a, a grant writer for, for continuing medical education. And, you know, through a series of sort of twists and turns, um, ended up over in the payer landscape at United Healthcare for a bit. And then in 2001, um, one of my younger siblings, I'm the oldest of six, got out of a pool one day over in Korea. He was serving in the army as a chaplain on the demarcation line and he died, no sign or symptom. And um, I can I can talk about this, you know, very formally now because um, that was in 2001. Uh, it happened a month before 9-11. So it's seared into my memory like that year is for many people. And um, and what he was 21, healthiest of all of us, um, truly. And what we come, came to find out was he um, had died of something called long QT syndrome. It's an, an electrical imbalance in the rhythm in our heart. Um, you know, you, if you, uh, you know, we were all sort of tuned in to the football game and, and Damar Hamlin this, this past couple of weeks. And um, I think people are starting to realize like how amazing the heart is and that it can get hit wrong or things can happen and your electrical rhythm changes. Wow. So, my brother had uh, had just literally collapsed and died instantly from this disease, and we didn't even know um, what it was. But uh, through um, some amazing connections, the um, and and some family history sort of sleuthing, we got connected to a clinical research study um, on long QT disorder. 
and our whole family joined and they found the specific gene in our family and that allowed us to treat um, that gene either with beta blockers or implanted defibrillators and also increase the awareness across our family of this disease. So I have girl cousins who had heart attacks in childbirth and couldn't explain it. Um, oh I have goodness. had a cousin collapse on his office floor and, um, and be brought back to life. So the legacy of my brother um, had an impact on all of us. But for me, I said, wow, I had no idea clinical research could do this, could make, you know, make this kind of magic. I have goosebumps. Wow. Ugh. So I, um, I did a crazy thing, which, uh, you know, maybe this is, this is why I'm a little infamous, but I started picking up the phone and calling patient recruitment companies until I found one um, and got an interview. And I was initially turned down for the job because I don't have a college degree. And that's uh, a, a fun fact very few people know about me um, because I've spent so much time in the space. You know, people just assume if you're in healthcare, you know, you must have a, a science background. Um, but someone took a chance on me and that's how I initially got into uh, patient recruitment engagement. And my career since then has been primarily focused on patient engagement and has taken some twists and turns. I've done a lot in digital health. Um, I've done a lot with um, data, uh, data governance um, in particular. And um, yeah, here I am now in research and early discovery at BMS. Wow, Bristol Myers Squibbs, right? That's, That's the right. That's wow, right. BMS. That's amazing. So, you know, this exciting, um, amazing kind of story. It's sad. It's it's so much power that comes from heartbreak. It's incredible and passion, and it's amazing what you bring into this world. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing that story with us and giving us insight into your your true journey, not just career, but also personal. That really led you into what you are today. It's it's truly, truly impactful. Well, thanks for thanks for saying that. You know, I think all of us um, who work in healthcare, no matter where you are in the ecosystem, <clears throat> almost to the person, if you ask them to tell you why they're in healthcare, they've got a personal story to share. Mm. And um and that's something we don't do enough, right? We don't we don't ask um, people just stop and say, Hey, you know, how'd you get where you are? What are, what are you doing? So thank you and the podcast for um, bringing light to those stories. I think it's really important. Absolutely. So I want to dive into some of this research work that you're working on um, and kind of talk a little bit about the patient centricity movement now. Um, so how is this patient centricity movement and diversity movement really impacting the research world? Um, what concepts and solutions really anchor these efforts? Um, what limitations keep the movement from gaining even more momentum? Because clearly the patient story is impactful and patients, which should be patient centric. So yeah, what are the pros and cons. Yeah, thanks for asking that. You know, um, it's really hard when you have been trying to impact something for a lot of years to go like, have we really made any progress? And patient engagement is one of those spaces. Um, I think uh, the people who have fought the good fight to try and make clinical trials more inclusive and diverse they, they are also feeling fatigued. Um, and yet, a lot of us are re-energized at the same time right now. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, you know, for a long time, patient centricity, patient engagement, these were buzzwords. We said we did them. We'd be lucky to get a token patient on a, on a panel at a conference. Um that's one of those places that I still think we have a lot of work to do. I think we have a lot of work to do. I'll, I'll just say that. I think we still have so much work to do. Um, but 
I think that um, there are a couple of things that have sort of converged to help us see that if we don't start paying attention to lived experience, we're really missing the message. So for a while, it was, you know, patients are patients. We're the drug developers. We're following the science. You know, it's it's over here in a lab. It's not um, right there, you know, with, with people and humans. And I think what we've realized is, no, it's absolutely starts with the humans. And we cannot tolerate if we want a healthier world to continue to make research about perfect patients. Um, mm. I'm, I mean, and I hate I hate to say that, right, because it sounds so derogatory, but heck, we use the term subject for a long time, and that's really derogatory. Mm. Um, you know, a few uh, folks that I know in the um, inclusion space um, talk about this concept that we use words still that are really inflammatory. So we complain about subject. Well, think about the use of the word trial um, when you're trying to recruit people from marginalized communities who have been, um, you know, also marginalized in our legal system, for example. So mm -hmm. we, even our vernacular mm -hmm. has had an evolution over time. And I, that's just a start though. So, um, so what I think what we've realized is but when you do research on perfect patients, you can have that perfect controlled clinical trial and you can usually meet your primary outcome. But how much does that matter if then the drug that you put on market only serves those perfect patients? Mm. Like how limiting mm. is that, right? How limiting is that? And now we're in a place where the science has outpaced us in that, um, you know, what years ago when we talked about things like cell therapy and precision medicine, these things, they seem like, you know, scientific, futuristic, crazy things. And now um, it's not uncommon for a cancer patient to have their own cells taken out of their body um, and wow. then put back into their body to be part of the treatment. So that's true precision medicine right there, right? That is your very own body. And if you look at what's happened, right, with the mRNA um, push since since uh, COVID, I mean, we're talking about science that is not waiting around for us to get our act together in figuring out how to do research that creates outcomes for not just your perfect patient. Um, so I think, I think that's, you know, that's hopeful. I think the other thing that's like really exciting is the sort of confluence of patient engagement um, and the push towards true patient centricity and the push towards having more diverse and inclusive clinical trials. We're seeing those come together in a way we never did before. And they share one thing, and that is this lived, this concept of lived experience. And that's a term like I didn't even um, really know until I started on my own, you know, journey to really better understand um, how I could be, uh, you know, a better human <laughs> um, and how I could be a more inclusive human myself. And this concept of lived experience, we all have it right? We, we all have it, but very few people understand how important it is to apply to everything around us in order to make an impact. And so this idea of taking patient advocates who used to sit in this special little box of, I'm a patient advocate, and that's what I do for a living, and people who are diversity and inclusion experts, and that's what I have to do for a living, and now realizing, no, this is humans, 
and we all have lived experience. And the more we can amplify one another's lived experience, the more opportunity we have to create better healthcare for everyone. So mm-hmm. I said, I said a mouthful. You've got me on my soapbox already. I'm, I'm <laughs> rambling. <laughs> I love it. No, that is truly fantastic and insightful. You know, moving more into that, what is clinical research? as a care option. Now we know research can be done outside the walls of an academic institution. It's coming into your pocket. It's coming onto your watch. It's research is, yes, is coming to the patient. Um, Where is it gaining the most momentum uh, and why is it being challenged? Yeah, that's another great question. So, I would say I was I'm, I was an early advocate of the CRECO movement, right? Clinical research as a care option. Um, we've never found a better word for it because it's best to just say say what it is, and that is this concept of um, clinical research shouldn't just be this thing that's kept over here. Again, back to that sort of perfect patient concept, you know, uh, white males eighteen to you know sixty five or what have you, right? It is um, it's this concept that. It's not acceptable to just do research in academic medical centers or research specific sites and facilities because that's not meeting people where they are. And it pairs that with the exciting concept that clinical research is one of many options that we could be considering as we look to manage our own health. And there's been some um, some detractors of CRECO recently. I've seen some like rabble rousing on LinkedIn about this, that you know clinical research shouldn't be considered a care option. It is not fair to um, consider something that is unproven a care option. Um, and for people who say that, I say, there are a lot of things that we do that um, that are are not proven for any one person. Mm-hmm. Some of us can take Advil, uh, and that cures a headache. Other people have to take Excedrin. For other people, they drink a glass of water. So even things that have been proven for one person might not be what someone else needs. And quite frankly. We haven't figured it all out and discovering what works for different types of people is part and parcel to our healthcare journey. So I know there's a lot of excitement around things like Fitbits and, you know, I was pointing to my, my aura ring earlier. I can't live without it. Um, I'd love to know my, my readiness. Um, and hopefully today it was good. Right. Um, but, but we get excited about wearables and devices and I, I love a good piece of health tech um, like the next girl. Um, but why is it that it's okay for us to learn about our own metrics, you know, how many steps we took, how well we slept, and not for us to know that maybe um, that current treatment option, whether it's over the counter or it's by prescription or that lifestyle option, getting more sleep, eating differently, why are we being excluded from this other option, which is, would you like to explore if this new thing could actually be the thing for you? Wow. And of course there are risks, right? Um, there are risks and benefits. That's what institutional review boards are there for. They're there to make sure that we are not repeating the mistakes of the past in clinical research and we are being ethical in the way that we handle all patients, telling them, hey, this may or may not work. Um But if we didn't have people participate in research, then we wouldn't have any of those other things that we're Mm -hmm. talking about. And people really forget that. So I, what excites me about the clinical research as a care option movement and where I think it's going is to me is the, the, the formal home for the consumerization of healthcare. You know, if you listen to prognosticators and futurists um, in the healthcare space, they talk a lot about the consumerization of healthcare. And some people hate that term because they hate the concept that 
it makes us feel like commodities. But really, it's it's not that the people are the commodities, it's that healthcare is a commodity like everything else we buy. And we should have an opportunity to shop for the red shoes or the blue shoes in size nine or size two. And um, I would love to see our clinical research embedded in all of our other healthcare. I'm lucky that I have a primary care physician who is part of an academic um, medical center. And when I go see her, she brings students in the room with her often. Um, that's always a little bit, bit fun, bit of fun. Um, but one of the things she does do is she tells me about research opportunities as she's also telling me how we need to adjust my meds. What are the things I might be wanting to do for myself? That's where I need to have it presented to me from a trusted source. And so the clinical research as a care option movement, to me, it's it's fully ingrained. COVID has made it happen even more because we've realized that clinical research has to happen, not just in specific sites, but as a decentralized, um, you know, hybrid, et cetera, model where it, patient choices first. And I hope it continues um, because I think that's what we need as patients. We need all of our choices presented to us. Absolutely. And if you ask anyone who's in the rare disease community, you know, a rare disease patient, caregiver, uh, care partner, they say Craco is what's giving them hope. <laughs> they yeah. want Craco. And it's, you know, it's really part of that diversity and inclusion as well into the research world, you know, really pushing it out there and get, getting it into where patients are. So it's truly, truly interesting and fantastic. I'd love now to ask you a little bit about chat GBT. <laughs> so we're hearing about healthcare use cases for chat GBT, visual AI generators. What effects could these innovations have on research? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, three years ago, I think if you had told us that things like um, the AI generator Vanna could make us look like ourselves, but also an elf or a cyborg, <laughs> um, <laughs> by just taking a few images um, or, um, or that things like chat GPT would exist where it's not just a simple chatbot. You can ask complex questions and if the model has been trained and you can even take part as a as any any person in training this model to get smarter and ask more interesting questions and give you more interesting answers. I don't think we would have believed it. And I think we've had this like you know, you know, pardon my French, but oh shit moment with AI all of a sudden where we've realized like, oh, it's really here. Like it, it, it isn't just this futuristic thing. And in the healthcare space has been so interesting to watch the, the media and the posts sort of fly around because we, we still have people who are very well respected in our industry saying things like, Synthetic cohorts for clinical research or synthetic data, I, that's kind of hype. It's it's not hope at this point. Um, but then you look at something like ChatGPT, who, you know, apparently now we can use to pass the, the medical bar, you know, medical exams, right? Um, that's sort of mind-blowing to people that they realize you can ask questions and that this intelligence that we created um, and we are training and feeding can do some pretty amazing things. So I think all of a sudden people's minds are open that the possibilities and they're here now, it's not so futuristic. And yet um, I think some of the reason people are kind of both poking fun at chat GPT and like also posting use cases at the same time is I think 
this is one of those things where I feel like, I, I don't know about you, but I often have this sort of like pit in my stomach sort of instinct when I know something is really cool, but maybe I don't quite understand it. And ChatGPT, Vanna, all these, you know, AI mm-hmm. tools, they give me a little bit of that pit in my stomach. I know. I wonder, it's like, is, is there an ethical line when they're using it and with real patients and patients don't know? So I wonder if there is going to be at some point, you know, a sign off. Yes, I know I'll use it or not. Maybe there will be a clinical trial or something that goes into it. It's interesting. It's, it is really fascinating. Um, I have a mentor who who I've worked with in the patient data ownership movement for many years. Mm-hmm. And um, he invited me a few, couple of years ago to the, the UN sort of deck, de- you know, anniversary of the declaration of, you know, their human rights. And um, at the time, you know, we were talking about this concept of making patient data ownership sort of the 31st human right. And it got some momentum, although I feel like the idea was still a little early for the world. But what I heard at that um, conference was, you know, you the people like the founder of the internet sitting there, you know, sort of Tim Berners-Lee. And they were saying things like, I did create this amazing thing, but I had no idea the unintended consequences of that mm-hmm. thing. And as a patient and as a parent and as a human, um, I'm confronted so many times in the day with these quandaries of these things that have been given to us, whether it's social media, whether it is another app on our phone that collects our health data, or whether it's some of this new AI technology that has some really interesting, sometimes scary trade-offs when we want to use them. And so, of course, I hopped right on the bandwagon and started typing stuff into ChatGPT. Of course, I had debates about it, but um, initially, even though some some in my you know cyber uh, vigilant community have said, "Don't ever let your kids download TikTok," I let that happen. Um, and most of us click that sort of "I accept" button over and over and over again, right? We don't even think twice about it. Mm. Um, so, to your point, the ethics of all of this and trying to trying to the best of our ability to forecast some of the unintended consequences that could come up. You know, I I get a little tired of us talking about um, the only example we talk about when we talk about bias in AI and healthcare. It's not the only example, but it's uh, as usual. I'm infamously exaggerating. But what we talk about is um, how poor uh, image AI does for people of color. And that's true, right? Or um, our, our pulse oximeters and how and how poor they do, right? And how we're not being inclusive in that way. All of that is 100% true. But there are hundreds of other use cases too that we need to really think about the ethics of and we need to think about the unintended consequences of. And so for me, I feel like my personal responsibility being someone who leads in the data space Um, I need to be constantly reminding us as a community to check our own biases and to remember we're introducing all of those biases to this amazing technology. It can be a friend or foe, but we truly, truly have to know what we're getting ourselves into. And look, fear is what stops people from innovating all the time. And I don't want to ever let fear drive my decisions. Um, But I think there is a, a difference between fear and being truly risk averse and being vigilant and being smart and um, making sure you're keeping your aperture open to what you're actually dealing with. That's so true. So, so true. Now, I'm wondering, you know, in that kind of tone, 
what healthcare technologies and research innovations and things out there are most exciting you now? Yeah, you know, I feel like we're um, we're finally moving past a point where when we talk about medical devices that are part of research, it's not just about remote patient monitoring anymore. I mean, I love the concept of remote patient monitoring because it allows um, us to know that um, that we are being cared for by our clinician throughout the course of a clinical trial, that they might be able to see um, and predict a side effect even um, and keep us safe and keep us healthy. Um, but we are now beyond just remote patient monitoring. Uh, you know, I've sat in a couple pitch competitions um, over the last year where we're seeing things like ports that um, now are smart ports that can predict an infection is brewing so um, a patient can stay healthy. That's beyond remote patient monitoring. That is truly, you know, infection prevention happening. Mm. Um, that that sort of blows my mind. Um, I also think we are starting to harness technologies, um, big and small. Um, one of my favorite stories, and this goes all the way back to 2017, um, I you know saw this father get up on stage at, at the Stanford Medicine X conference, and he was there with his daughter who had a rare disease, and it uh, caused her to lose the use of her arm. And he, being an engineer, figured out how to create plans for a special uh, brace that uh, she was able to use to regain use of that arm and he 3D printed it and he open sourced that out onto the to the, the free market, so to speak, so other parents could do it. And so this this concept of um, us moving sort of to beyond just just, hey, I'm keeping track of you and how you're doing to things that actually are true interventions, that amazes me. And this, of course, this trend, um, which I think we should stop calling a trend, and I wish we could come up with a better term for it, decentralized trials, hybrid trials, emerging child delivery models is what I used to call it, right? <laughs> but let's face it, what we're really talking about here, it goes right back to, to CRECO, which is what uh, what does clinical research as a care option look like to you? Do you want to come into a site? Do you want people to come into your home? Do you want people never to come into your home? If you see how messy this room is behind me, um, I would not like to do a study visit at home. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but but I love this concept of the fact that everybody in the healthcare game is starting to get into it and play. I love seeing the Walgreens and the CVSs come in um, and and do their thing and say, you know, we are in these communities already. Um, you know, Walmart, um, you know, was one of the very few places that we had around us when I was a kid. I grew up sort of truly outhouse poor um, in Texas. And Walmart was one of the places that you sort of was almost like town square. And Walmart's done a lot to support veterans um, health care because they're in those rural um, communities. So now that we've got new places um, to be taking care of our own health and research is starting to come along and be part of those new places, um, or the way we're leveraging those places in a new way. I, that's what I'm excited about. I'm excited about the way that um, all of a sudden we're starting to work together as a collective ecosystem to make things better for patients, whether it's technologists and device manufacturers, whether it's trialists who are willing to try something new, or whether it's um, companies who are who are risking, in some cases, their you know, Wall Street profits on being there and present um, on a new business model, which includes research, um, which makes it research for all. Yay. 
I just love that. It's so true. And I just love to hear your insight as, you know, a woman who has held coveted roles in research and, you know, you're well known and respected in your era of influence regularly on these panels, regularly hearing these important conversations happening. So really appreciate that insight. Um, what skills and daily habits? I kind of want to move to talking to you now. Um, just you as a professional, as a woman, as a mentor. What skills and habits have you, um, you know, done to kind of get to where you are now in your career? Mm, that's a that's a really great question. Um, I'm finally old enough to have enough hindsight to maybe pick a couple things out there. Um, one of them is. Um, it's a product of of my lack of college degree, um, which is I've never uh, been settled in um, specializing in one area. It's been really important for me, and I think it's really important for young people to explore um, lots of different things. There's a difference between building a skill set and building subject matter expertise. Mm-hmm. And so I came into the research space with no subject matter expertise in research. I have it now because I've spent 20 years in this space. Mm-hmm. But what I did come in with was um, a great writing skill set. And I took that great writing skill set and I made that a great speaking skill set. And I took that great communication skill set and I made that a great creative skill set. And then I picked up ideation techniques and I learned things like design thinking and root cause problem solving. So I brought a problem solving thing and I started to stack these skills sort of one on top of the other. And those skills are transferable and applicable to lots of different things. Um, so Yes, I've elected to pair that skill stack with subject matter expertise in research um, because I care about it. I'm deeply passionate about it. And I think that's that's what we need to think about doing, right? So for me, the key to success has been ultimate flexibility um, and being willing to just constantly stay curious and try new things and not get hung up on what I don't know. Um, I think we all have those moments where we want to be the smartest person in the room. I now sit on a team with a lot of really smart people in the room. I mean, we're talking scientists, engineers, people who have 8, 10, 12 years of education, and then another 20 years of you know work experience on top of that, doing really amazing, complicated things. I'm never going to be the smart, smartest person in those rooms, right? Um, and that's okay, because what I can do and what I can contribute is I can bring my enthusiasm, my curiosity, my passion, and then I can help them pull that out. Um, and so, so for me, it's about sort of finding your place, not being worried about um, being that either the smartest person or the, you know, I'd rather be the nicest person than the smartest person. Um, I'd rather be the more, more, most curious person than the smartest person. Um, but, but I think really finding what you're passionate about, it all comes back to that. And then whatever skills you can stack on top of that passion, you'll be unstoppable. Absolutely. You know, I met you because you at a conference, you invited me into your crew and just enveloped me into this this crew and and supported me and in love. And I was a total stranger, but you let me in. And I just remember thinking, wow, that Angela, she is a powerhouse. Why is mentorship so important to you? Mm-hmm. If I didn't have amazing mentors throughout my career. I wouldn't have a career. Um, 
people over and over and over again took chances on me. Um, somebody early in my career said, I know that you were working at Bell Atlantic, what we now call Verizon, as an executive assistant that you tempt into that job, but you're a great writer. I think you can be a proposal and grant writer. And I was like, what? But that person spent the time on me. I have had bosses over the years who mentored me um, in really important ways that have made me a, a good boss and mentor. Things like giving me advice like, look, everybody's got good and bad things about them. Your job, you know, and my job as your boss is to love all those amazing things you bring to the table. I can ignore the rest about you. And, uh, you know, or bosses who taught me that sometimes even rock stars on your team need to move to a different team. You need to sort of export that talent somewhere else because it's maybe holding back the team in certain ways. So people have taken a lot of chances on me. And I think um, I think that's one piece of it. I think the other piece of it, um, and this is a really personal piece, I think, is um, you know, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that you know we grew up very, very poor. So we were often the family, you know, that got the toys for tots. We got the basket of fruit from church. You know, um, people sort of did things and took care of our family. Um, but while they were doing that, I had a great example of parents who brought strangers into our house because they didn't have anything either or, um, you know, lifted people up regularly. And I think that that human connection, the vulnerability, we show it in our inner circles, our personal circles with our friends and our family, the people who know and love us. And we forget that if we project that out in our work um, circle, we take work from work to vocation, you know, goes from something that we just do every day, sometimes from a place of passion, sometimes because that's just what our job is. But it changes it from being something that we have to do to something we want to do and something that we want to do that really increases our impact on the people around us. And so I think it's just important to show up with vulnerability and empathy and be willing to um, put yourself out there. Um, because if you're willing to do that, you discover some of the most amazing things about people. I mean, I, I met you because um, because you were willing to be vulnerable yourself, right? And come be part of our pay it forward dinner and just spend the time and say, you know, how can I help you? How can you help me? And that was at a personal level. It wasn't for, for any other reason. We got to know each other and what sort of made each of us special. And that was because we were vulnerable and shared. So it's a little scary to do that, but I think we have to do that more in the workplace, especially in the, the day and age that we're living in now. Absolutely. It's such a beautiful example. I know you talk a lot about impact influencing. What is that? And how can we make this more accessible to all? Hmm. Thanks for asking that. It is a term that I coined that has not quite cut on yet. But <laughs> it I will. I, I'm on the, the Hit Like a Girl podcast. Um, so all of you amazing listeners and viewers. Um, so impact influencing, um, you know, for for many years, there was this sort of, and it you know, still exists, right? It's the impact investing concept where we, um, you know, you put your money where your heart is. It's not, it's, it's about like, where can you invest your financial resources and your other resources to have an impact in this world, to do good, to do the right things. And um, the thing that I love about that, of course, is 
it's taking your resources and putting them in the right places and making choices to maybe do that versus sort of live in profit. But I don't think, unfortunately, impact um, investing is accessible to everyone because lots of people don't have any extra resources, you know, especially in the, the day and time of inflation that we live in, right? Um, some people are making the choice, a lot of people, maybe that most people are making choices like my car broke down, do I fix it or do I ride the bus because I've got to pay the electric bill or gee, I'd love to, you know, uh, pay for my medicine, right? But I've got to feed my kids. So this idea to me is it's not very accessible, but we all have a sphere of influence. And so to me, if you want to have impact, then what can you give? What can you offer out to the world um, to, to make a change? And for that, I think everyone has a sphere of influence, no matter where you are in the world. Your influence might be in a small pocket or a big pocket. So we've talked about, obviously, my passion about clinical research participation. And one of the things that I know I can do to level up my influence um, and my impact on the world is participate in research. And I, I don't do that just because I think if I participate in research, that I'm going to have an impact on research. Of course, I believe that. But I also believe deeply that research has the opportunity to impact every social cause we care about, whether it is making um, uh, health more accessible to all or whether it is ending some things that are really awful in our world, like housing insecurity. Um, housing insecurity is the one I go to the most because I was always two steps from homeless as a kid. And I think that really carried through um, for me as sort of this fear that sort of lives in here all the time that I know thing you can sort of have nothing very quickly, um, including a place to live, which is a scary place as a parent to even think about. But I know that if I participate in research on mental health or substance abuse, topics. And that could be answering a research survey, by the way. I, I may or may not have a mental health condition. I do. I'm proudly uh, a well-managed uh, bipolar disorder um, person, person with well-managed bipolar disorder. But if I, if I didn't, I could still do things to impact substance abuse or mental health trials. And by participating in those things, I'm having a ripple effect on homelessness and housing insecurity because many people who end up in that situation are there because of a substance abuse issue or a mental health issue or a combination of both. And so if I think about what actions can I take that could take my influence and my tiny sphere of the world, which is participating in this one little research study, and I think about the impact that ripple effect it could have, I realize, wow, that little action might stop someone from becoming homeless. That mm. keeps me going. Right. And I think we all have things like that, that we can do things that we care about, that we do every single day, that if we just did this tiny little tweak and we thought about it a little bit differently, we could increase our sphere of impact on the things that we really care about. Oh, that is so inspiring and encouraging and truly anyone could be an impact influencer and in their sphere of influence. And so that's exciting to think about how our listeners can be that impact influencer. Uh, what do you guys want to do to impact the world around you? Uh, let us know in the comments. To finish this conversation off right, where can our listeners find you online? So um, I 
uh, do a lot of sort of side things and to find out about that. Um, and by side things, I mean, I do a lot of coaching and mentoring and training. I run retreats sometimes with other friends um, inside and outside of industry to try and bring um, other people forward. Um, and I'm really passionate about helping people apply business skills like design thinking to um, their real world. Like I helped figure out how to make my daughter's summers a little less yucky um, uh, by using design thinking to sort of work my way through the challenge we were having. So um, I can be found on www.howmightywe. So like how might we, but with a Y, howmightywe.com. And of course, I'm very findable on LinkedIn. I'd love to follow you and have you follow me. Um, that That's an open invitation to all um, because I think that that for me, it right now is the social media platform I pay the most attention to. Um, and uh, yeah, those are two two great ways to sort of see what I'm up to, either sort of on the personal impact influencer front, howmightywe.com, or uh, on the professional front, LinkedIn, where I publish a lot of thought leadership. That's terrific. So before I forget, did you happen to bring tea with you today? I always have tea with me. Oh, I love it. Tell me about your mug. <laughs> All right. So this is one of my favorites. I know it's a little irreverent. What does it say for our listeners? It says, welcome to the shit show. And it's a beautiful mug uh, for those of you just listening. It's a, a, a beautiful cream colored mug. I like a big mug that you can hold with two hands and bright gold lettering. That's what it says. And it was gifted to me um, by a dear friend, uh, Trisha Barrett. She is um, her an impact influencer in her own right, uh, especially in the patient engagement space creatively. And she brought it to a girls weekend that we had with a, a, a circle of uh, other women um, in our space, which Again, I think it's so important, that connection. And it was a gift. And what I love about it is um, it is it, it embraces the spirit of a reverence that I think I try to bring into every day, which is, man, I mean, some days, a lot of days, maybe every day, does sometimes feel like a shit show. But it doesn't have to feel yucky. We can come into it with positivity. And so for me, it's like, instead of instead of thinking of it as welcome to the shit show, for me, it's Welcome to the shit show. Like I'm ready to, I'm ready to jump in. You have control of this circus, right? I have control yes. of this circus, right? Exactly. I have control of this circus. And in so many ways, like that's where the fun stuff is found. That's where the good stuff is found. Um, you know, so it's it's one of my favorites, especially on days where I, I need to like own that day instead of letting the day own me grab my welcome to the shit show mug and, and pour a big hot cup of, British Twinings Earl Grey tea, the only tea by my, you know, opinion um, in there. And I'm good to go for the day. That's too good. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Angela. Thanks so much for having me. This was so much fun. It was great to see you. And I hope we get to see each other in person again really soon. Hopefully so. And thank you all for joining us too. Check out the Hit Like a Girl podcast website and YouTube page for more great guests like Angela today. Cheers. Cheers. Like a Girl Media is more than a media network. It's a community. We want to meet you and amplify your voice and the voices of outstanding women innovating in healthcare. Interested in starting your own podcast or hosting an event near you? Connect with us online or in person. We're here to support and empower you. 